Heavenly Father, we thank you that your, uh, your word speaks to us today, and we ask that you would open our ears and our hearts to receive you this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. So does anyone know how many sleeps there are till Christmas? Uh, Isabel um, has um, been quite obsessed with that in the past, uh, so she'd have a bit of a shot, I think. Uh, apparently there are just 106 days, or three months and 15 days, or 15 weeks and one day, depending on how you like to count. Um, I haven't looked, but I'm sure there are, there's Christmas stuff in the shops already. Um, I noticed that, um, obviously, we lament the um, predicament of Wilco's, but it was noticeable that when I walked in uh, to the store, they were selling um, Christmas stuff at an especially high discount. So if you want to get any fake Christmas trees or anything, then Wilco's is your place. But uh, in our home, there is a strict ban on singing Christmas songs until about mid-November, or ideally 1st of December. But sadly, this very reasonable commandment is contravened by members of the family who shall remain nameless and obviously are suitably punished. However, through this autumn, we are thinking about Christmas. Or more, or more accurately, we're thinking about Christ. As well as, we, as well as looking forward to the promise of Jesus' return, Advent is traditionally the season when we anticipate the celebration of the coming of Jesus among us. We hear those prophecies, don't we, uh, that are most associated with Jesus' Jesus's, uh, coming, and particularly in, in one of my favorite services of the year, the, the service of lessons and carols, that story unfolds from Genesis all the way through to the Gospels. And it culminates in that wonderful proclamation, the climax, if you like, of the whole uh, service, the climax of the whole Christian story. The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. What a wonder that single statement is. And, and we could spend our entire lives meditating on that. But for me, at least, it feels like Advent goes, across, uh, goes by too quickly. There aren't enough Sundays to get to grips with what the Bible has to say about our Savior Jesus, both before and after his life, death, and resurrection. And that's the extraordinary thing. The Old Testament, the whole of the Old Testament points to Jesus. Nicky Gumbel says, No one else in the, in the history of humanity has had a whole collection of books written about them before they were born. Jesus fulfilled over 300 Old Testament prophecies, spoken by different voices over hundreds of years, 29 of them in a single day. It could be suggested he was a kind of clever con man who deliberately set out reading all these prophecies and he thought, right, I'm going to go through and fulfill uh, them in my life. The difficulty with that is that, uh, firstly, there's just a, a sheer number of them is quite extraordinary. And then the fact that, humanly speaking, he had no control over many of these things. There are prophecies about the exact manner of his death, about the place of his burial, even about the place of his birth. If he was a con man, he couldn't say, oh goodness, I'm supposed to be born in Bethlehem. It's too late. So the whole of the Old Testament points forward to Jesus. But there are particular places in the Old Testament where we see what's been termed as messianic prophecy. That's a prophecy that, that looks forward to a coming saviour. And so we're going to spend time this, this, uh, this autumn focusing on some of these prophecies, particularly uh, those that are, appear in the, um, in the book Isaiah. Because we believe that Jesus is that promised one, that he was that saviour. 
unique in human history. Isaiah, hundreds of years before the birth of Jesus, was given uh, glimpses of a promised future in a time of turmoil. He was given glimpses of someone who would be sent by God to rescue his people. And so we are going to spend time this autumn seeing how these prophecies are fulfilled in Jesus, who was God with us, God born for us, a saviour, a shepherd, the anointed one. And we'll see how through these ancient words we can discover fresh hope in Jesus today. Because that's a wonderful thing, is that although many of these words are thousands of years old, they still speak. And my prayer, my expectation is that we will hear, we will receive. God will speak. So may we have hearts and ears open to that. So this week, we're focusing on that uh, prophecy in Isaiah 7. You'll know that verse. You probably don't know the verses that surrounded it, which is why sometimes it's good to hear the whole context, um, including the really difficult names. And that verse, Isaiah 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son, and will call him Emmanuel. We know that verse, don't we? It's probably familiar to quite a lot of us. It appears in Matthew 1, uh, which Barbara read for us. And of the accounts that retell the events surrounding Jesus' birth, we're probably not so familiar with the Matthew's account. We normally hear uh, the, uh, the account from Luke because it's, you know, it's got the angel Gabriel appearing, it's got the shepherds and the, the angels visiting Bethlehem. It's a, it's a more kind of, I don't know, Christmassy, uh, more Christmassy uh, story. But Matthew's account complements it. Because it tells the same story from Joseph's perspective. We learn how he responds to the news of his betrothed pregnancy. In summary, not very well. But then the crucial intervention that comes from the angel in a dream who says that the baby is indeed has been conceived through the power of the Holy Spirit. And this baby will be called Jesus because he will save his people from their sins. And then in verse 22 of that passage, we hear that 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 um, quote, all this took place to fulfill what the Lord had said through the prophet, the virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and they will call him Emmanuel and helpfully he translate what that means so he says, which means God with us. So Matthew sees these messy events that, take, that are taking place in Nazareth as being the fulfillment of Isaiah's prophecy spoken out over 500 years previously. But how can that be the case? Because after all, if you look at the two scenarios, the, the situation that we have in Isaiah with all the kind of, the, the, the armies coming in and all that sort of stuff, it doesn't seem to relate very well to the, uh, this couple, this young couple who, who have this miraculous birth happening to them. So what does it mean then for the prophet's words to be fulfilled? Firstly, I want to take some time this morning just to kind of set up the series for you, if you like. Uh, to think a little bit about Old Testament prophecy uh, in general. Uh, Nick Page, I've, I've nicked quite a lot from him, uh, and he has this helpful summary. He says, Prophecy is often confused with prediction, with the ability to see into the future. In the Bible, prophecy is much broader than that. Prophets were people of truth. They spoke the truth that God gave them. Often, that did indeed involve predictions of the future, warnings of impending punishment or promises of future blessing. But just as frequently, it involved challenging people about their conduct. Prophets encouraged, criticized, and exhorted the kings, the priests, and the people. This emphasis on truth 
meant that being a prophet was a risky business. If a prophet's words were not proved to be true, if he or she was a false prophet, they could be taken and stoned. Job assessment was tough in those days. Prophets played a significant part in the life of Israel. Although many of them were abused and ignored, many were accorded respect and allowed to exercise their gifts, even if that made for uncomfortable listening. Descriptions of the experience of prophecy in the Bible are often physical. Prophets shake, and the message burns inside their bones. They cannot help but speak out. And several of them receive the gift of prophecy with a certain amount of reluctance. Uh, the prophets in the Bible bring many different messages from God, but it's possible to spot some themes, especially in the messages of the later prophets. They call the people back to God and true faith. They call for justice and condemn the rich, the powerful, the self-righteous for the way they're oppressing the poor. They continually warned Israel and Judah what would happen to them if they persisted in their evil ways. They also had warnings of destruction for the surrounding nations. Along with judgment, uh, and there is another thread running through their words, the saving mercy of God comes through. You see, if the prophets saw the near future in all its awfulness, with the destruction that's coming, they also saw the far future in its glory. They saw destruction, but also the salvation that would come, not just for Judah and Israel, but for the all humanity. They contrasted the world around them with the world which was to come. Most of all, they pointed to Jesus, the Messiah, who would usher in God's reign of peace, justice, mercy, compassion, safety, shelter, and love. So that's the prophets in general. As for Isaiah, uh, he was considered to be possibly the, the greatest of prophets, uh, which is why we find the book of Isaiah is first in the Bible, in the section of the kind of prophecies. It's, the Bible was arranged in a particular order, and you've kind of got different sections. So you've got the histories, you've got uh, the sort of poetry with Psalms and, and Proverbs and Ecclesiastes and that sort of thing. And then you have the prophets kind of to finish off the Old Testament. And Isaiah is the first of that. So he's the greatest. It's that he has pride of place in the Old Testament there. His name means the Lord saves. He's married with two sons. He lived mainly in Jerusalem. Uh, he apparently wrote a biography of King Uzziah. And according to Jewish tradition, died a particularly gruesome death. He was sawn in half. I know. However, some experts believe the book to be the work of different Isaiahs, but you can look at that up another time. He begins his ministry in uh, 740 BC, and he lived at, until at least 681 BC when the Assyrians were defeated. So his, his ministry um, spans a long time in going through a lot of different stuff. The core themes that you find in the book of Isaiah are judgment and redemption. God will punish his people, and there's lots, if you read through the book of Isaiah, there's a lot of doom and gloom in there. He will punish his people, but he will also rescue them. Isaiah constantly emphasizes God's power and might. He is a fire that will scorch the earth. But God is also described, as well as being a fire in judgment, as words of, of hope. God is a stream in the desert, a road back from exile. Isaiah points to the exile that will come, but he also points beyond to a wonderful new age, an age of peace and wholeness when the Messiah will reign. So that's Isaiah in a nutshell. I mean, there are tomes and tomes of the prophets Isaiah. I won't bore you with any more, but that kind of sets up where, it, where we are with, with Isaiah generally. And we'll hear more of some of those different themes that come out of judgment, but also hope.
those two things hand in hand. So what's going on then with Isaiah 7? Uh, you may want to have a look at it yourselves. Uh, I'm not sure what page it is in the Bible, um, but do find it, Isaiah 7. And there's this, this prophecy, uh, Emmanuel, that comes in the middle of a, a rather strange section. So we are at the beginning of the reign of Ahaz, king of Judah. And it's helpful to remember in our heads that Israel has, has by this time, for a long time, has been divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom of uh, Israel and the southern kingdom of Judah. The Judah um, kings are, tend to be those who are the descendants of David. Um, after Solomon died, Israel broke away and basically military leaders became kings. And so there wasn't that same line of succession. But the, the line of succession of the, the, the king that comes, comes through the kings of Judah, they're the ones who are descendants of David. And so uh, Ahaz is, uh, the, um, new, is, is a new king, and he, he's, he's in trouble, to be honest. Uh, Assyria is the empire that is of greatest threat and influence at the time uh, Assyria had invaded Palestine, so that's in the, the, the northern part, uh, the northern kingdom, and other states. But the other kings got together, and they paid huge sums of money as tribute to the Assyrian Empire, who was called Tiglath-Pilesar III. And the northern kingdom, Israel, was one of the nations that paid this tribute. So, so that's how they would do it. So, so sometimes the, the, the powerful empires, they wouldn't necessarily want... Um, to invade a country and own it for itself, but they wouldn't mind having the grain or the money that would come from these countries. So they, they would invade. They would threaten them. And so these smaller states would, would pay off. Say, go away, we'll give you tribute. You can, have, uh, you can have our produce that we produce. You can have some of that. And if you just leave us alone and let us be. Uh, and so that continued until there was this chap, Pekka, uh, who assumed the throne, and he tries to form a coalition with other smaller states to stand up to Assyria. So you've got big state Assyria, and you've got these other little nation states who kind of join them together to kind of fight, them, fight Assyria off. And they want to get Judah involved. So this is where Ahaz comes in. So Ahaz is being, um, is, finds himself under siege from these smaller states because they want to persuade him to join in the big fight against uh, Assyria. So that's why you've got these people, the uh, Pekka, son of Ramalia, king of Israel, and others marching together in battle. And they, they marched up to fight against Jerusalem, but they could not overpower it because it was a difficult city to besiege. You, you had to have resources. It was, well, it was, it was a good place for defense. So Ahaz, Ahaz wants to stand on his own two feet. He wants, to, he wants to be independent here. And he refuses to join in with this conspiracy. He wants to stand on his own. Uh, and so in response, they attack him. They want to force, uh, they want to basically, they want to force other people to get rid of the king Ahaz so that they can be, um, so, that, so, they, so the leaders can be persuaded to join in with this battle. Uh, so it's a serious situation. What are they going to do? God speaks to Isaiah. God speaks a word of encouragement 
to Isaiah, and he arranges to go off with his son. Isaiah and his son go off. They meet um, Ahaz at a particular place. By the sounds of it, it looks like it's a quite a secret location. If you look at this, this talk of a, an upper pool at the aqueduct on the, on the road to the launderer's field in verse 3. And the word from the Lord in this situation is, look, be careful. Keep calm. Don't be afraid. Don't lose heart. Because of the threat of these, because of these two smoldering stubs of firewood. Because of their fierce anger of resin and aram. He says, they they may have plotted your ruin, in verse 5, saying, let's invade Judah, let's tear it apart and divide it among ourselves and make make the son of Tabiel king over it. Yet it will not happen, the Lord says. It will not happen. And he says, within 65 years, Ephraim will be too shattered to be a people. And then there's that final word of encouragement. He says, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. So he's saying it's not going to happen. You might feel under threat, but trust in God that it will not happen. And he also prophesies the full destruction of the kingdom of uh, Ephraim, which is another word for the northern kingdom of Israel. There's quite a lot to get your head around. But Ahaz is wavering here. So Isaiah wants to encourage him. And in this context, he's wanting to encourage him. says, look, there's going to be a sign for you. I'm going to send you a sign so that you can know that my words will come to pass. And then he comes up with that famous declaration. The virgin will conceive and give birth to a son and will call him Emmanuel. He'll be eating curds and honey when he knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right. So before the boy knows enough to reject the wrong and choose the right, the land of the two kings you dread will be laid waste. The Lord will bring on you and your people and on the house of your father a time unlike any since Ephraim broke away from Judah. He will bring the king of Assyria. So he's saying here, this deliverance, you're going to be delivered from these two enemies and you're going to be delivered soon. By the time uh, there's going to be a baby that's going to be born, it's going to be a he's going to be called Emmanuel, which, is a, which means God with us. And he'll be grown up and eating already. He'll be weaned. And that's when the deliverance will happen. So Emmanuel seems to be like a baby that's going to be born soon. Like in, in, in a few months even. So Isaiah seems to be here speaking into this, uh, this immediate situation facing Ahaz in the Judahites. Uh, The Hebrew word used in verse 14, which is usually translated as virgin, could also mean young woman. So we don't know who, and and there's been lots of been written about who is this young woman that's been referred to. We don't really know, but what we do know is that it was likely to have been spoken within this, spoken to someone in the immediate surroundings. So so Isaiah wasn't primarily thinking about a fulfillment of a word that's happening here and that, like in the far future. But primarily, he was saying, God is going to act, and God is going to act to relieve you now. And so far from being a prophecy of a distant time, Isaiah seems to be saying that in a short time, despite the hardships that you're enduring, many people will know that God is with them. Their faith in God will be, they they will trust in the provision of God to deliver them. 
So why then, if this prophecy seems to be about this situation, this, this, uh, like this, this military conflict that they're facing, why, why, why do we hear about it at Christmas time? Why is this prophecy associated with Mary and Jesus? Well, it's because Jesus was seen by, by himself and by the early church as being the ultimate fulfillment of the whole of the Old Testament. As I said earlier, the, the, everything points forward to Jesus. So therefore, thanks to Jesus, it's possible to read the whole of the, new, the Old Testament in a new light as pointing to, anticipating the coming of the Savior. So the Gospel writers, Matthew and Luke and the early church, they believed the virgin birth to be a fact, so that when Matthew read this account in Isaiah again of a young woman giving birth to a child, Emmanuel, he could see it and think, well, this reminds me of Jesus. As Nick Page summarizes, this passage may not have been a direct prophecy of Christ, but it was certainly a pattern, a distant echo of what Christ would do. Isaiah knew that tough times were ahead, but he knew ultimately that God would be with his people, which is exactly what Christmas is all about. So in the gospel account that we have of Joseph, Mary, and Jesus, we see a family that's in a mess. They're mired in near family breakdown and potential scandal. They would face lonely times ahead of them. There'd be times when they would face misunderstanding, abuse, and ultimately, Mary would watch her own child die. In the midst of this comes this promise, a promise for them, a promise for us. A promise for anyone who finds themselves in times of trial. Jesus came to be Emmanuel, God with us. See, for Ahaz and Judah, when Isaiah was speaking, this deliverance that came through Emmanuel was sh- would, would be short-term. It would be temporary. Sadly, the people of Israel and Judah, they continued to ignore the warnings about judgment. And those nations were vanquished. The people were taken into exile. But when Emmanuel was born to the Virgin Mary, hundreds of years afterwards, the deliverance that would come through this child would be eternal. Jesus came to be the saviour for us. Jesus came to be God with us. Not just when we're here together on Sundays. Not just at Christmas time when we have the prophecies about Jesus read to us again. But every single day, we can know the wonderful truth that we are never alone. That God's word to us is to say stand firm in your faith if you don't stand firm in your faith if you don't remind yourself daily that actually though as, as Barbara put it so, so well that those, those times flux and change the unchangeable truth is that Jesus is the same yesterday today and forever his love for us is eternal the work that he did in coming for us to be Emmanuel in living for us in dying for us, in rising again for us, that is eternal. That doesn't change whatever we face. Jesus lives for us. In fact, it says that Jesus intercedes for us. He's he's present, praying for us. And whatever we face, the promise is that we will never be alone. God is with us.
I don't know what we're facing this term. Uncertainty and change. I know for some of the young people, it's, it's a daunting time. Think of those young people that we started to get to know who were in year six and now are in, find themselves in year seven. And their uniform's too big because they haven't grown into it yet. And they don't know anyone. And the friends that they were hoping they would have from their old school, they aren't in the same class or timetable or whatever it is. It's hard. But whatever they face, whatever we are facing, we can know the encouragement that we are never alone. We may even feel that we, like uh, uh, Israel in Isaiah 7, are besieged. I've certainly felt like I've been besieged before. But the word comes to us that Emmanuel is here. And unlike Isaiah, this isn't a future promise that we got to look forward to at some point. It's happened. It's now. Jesus is for us. Jesus is with us now. And we are never alone. So whatever you're facing, may you know that God is with you. And God is for you. He is a source of all our hope. He is our living saviour. So may we rest in him today. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word to us. Thank you, Lord, for that incredible promise of Emmanuel, God with us. May this truth be something that we are anchored by throughout the year, not just at Christmas time when it appears on those Christmas cards and different things. Lord, whatever uncertainty, change, tumult we face, may we know through your spirit, through your power, the unchangeable truth that God is with us. Amen.